I think there's a lot of different definitions out there, but I would say just mitigating the risks or harms associated with a certain action, in this case, using drugs. So that could be really direct and exactly what you think it is, like having naloxone on hand to prevent an opioid overdose. But it could also be legal harm reduction, like policy change that stops people who use drugs from being arrested. Hello and welcome to the History of Drugs in Society. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. In this week's episode, I talked to Julia Hilbert, who is the chair of the board of directors at Students for Sensible Drug Policy, or SSDP, which is the largest global youth-led network dedicated to ending the war on drugs. Julia is also the president of Dance Safe Pittsburgh, a harm reduction organization focused on nightlife activities here in Pittsburgh, and works part-time doing direct service, amongst other things, at Prevention Point Pittsburgh, which is a needle exchange and opioid harm reduction organization. First, a quick housekeeping tangent. You can expect an episode every other week for the next two months or so. The next two episodes will relate to cannabis and drug legalization in the U.S. more broadly, and I'll keep you updated where we're going to go from there. In today's interview, we start off by talking about how Julia first got involved in harm reduction and drug policy activism in the first place. I wanted to start the conversation here so Julia could share her perspective in case anyone who's listening is actually looking to get more involved, whether here in Pittsburgh specifically or wherever you might reside. And again, though we do mainly focus on the Pittsburgh area, many cities in the U.S. and some internationally do have their own SSDP chapters as well as dance safe chapters or other local organizations that are focused in the harm reduction and drug policy activism space. I also wanted to hear more about her experience in the community when it came to harm reduction activities. Figuring out how to deal with the stigma of drug usage is always a major challenge. So we spoke about how her experience with DanceSafe informed her thinking in that regard. We then spent the back half of the interview talking about harm reduction more broadly, the normalization of drug usage, and what changes in the world of drug policy and harm reduction Julia hopes to see during her career. And with that, here's the interview with Julia. Just want to flag at the beginning here that the views expressed in this podcast episode are my own as Julia Hilber and not necessarily any of my titles or affiliations that will be mentioned throughout here. All right, Julia, well, thank you so much for joining me today. To start off, do you mind just giving your name and professional title? Sure. Uh, My name is Julia Hilbert, and right now I am the chair of the board of directors for Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Great. And what led you to get involved in uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, or SSDP, as we'll be referring to it a lot? Uh, What led you to get involved with them for the first in the first place? Yeah, um, I got involved with SSDP in 2017 when some friends of mine were working on founding our chapter at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, where I went to school. And I was just really interested in getting involved. I mean, my hometown of Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania and the surrounding area, there's um, a lot of folks that have struggled with substance use disorders um, and the overdose crisis and kind of got me interested in um, that whole field, learning more about the activism behind it and what I could try to do to help. And I guess later in 2018, after attending my first international conference with SSDP, that really uh, made my 
career trajectory what it is now. I um, changed my major to social work and uh, decided I wanted to work in harm reduction and drug policy reform. That's really cool. Where was the international conference? Uh, In 2018, it was in Baltimore. Um, And the other one I attended in 2019 was in Chicago, but it's uh, in a different place every year. Uh, We did not have a 2021 due to the pandemic. that's, uh, That's understandable. And what were, do you mind mentioning some of the specific projects that you got involved in when you were with SSDP? Yeah. When I was working with my chapter, one of the first things we did was work on um, the University of Pittsburgh's medical amnesty policy. Um, So that's kind of like a beefed up Good Samaritan policy. Um, Pennsylvania State does have a Good Samaritan policy already. But what that looks like is someone's experiencing a medical emergency that's drug related, like an overdose. Um, If you call for help for that person, you're protected from charges for possession or anything else that you might have done as long as you stay with them until the paramedics arrive. Uh, The issue with that is that the person experiencing the emergency is not protected and other people such as whoever owns the property you two are sitting on are not protected. Um, So what Pitt's medical amnesty policy does is kind of get in there and say there's a student that's um, experiencing alcohol poisoning at a frat party or something like that. the student experiencing the emergency is protected. The person who calls for help is protected. Uh, all the other people in the party are protected and the frat itself and the landlord of the home they're in are all protected. So as long as no one does anything violent or there's not anything like that going on when the police arrive, nobody will be arrested. And that's specifically at the University of Pittsburgh campus, right? Yes, that's right. So that's at... um. The University of Pittsburgh campus and kind of the surrounding area where the Pitt police rather than the Pittsburgh City police would be responding. I guess our our only other huge one we had was the following year we did a kind of campaign and rally called Decriminalize Safety. Um, And that was aimed at uh, decriminalizing syringes and drug checking uh, resources in Pennsylvania. Um, So that's uh, syringes themselves and uh, drug checking materials such as fentanyl test strips or reagent drug checking kits um, in order to make them um, more available for harm reduction purposes and uh, for people who use drugs themselves to have. And how did that pan out, especially in terms of being able to provide test strips or or, or the clean syringes or whatever people need to make sure that they're not uh, heightening their risk of potential uh, issues arising for for really no reason? Hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't get any legislation or anything around that. We did have a very successful rally with a lot of community partners involved. Um, I guess uh, with fentanyl test strips, there was a bill introduced later on that wasn't as comprehensive as we'd like to see necessarily, but definitely made a stride as far as um, not having them always be considered illegal as paraphernalia in Pennsylvania. Um, But yeah, both of those are still ongoing efforts in the state. Yeah, it always does shock me if uh, if the state if the intention of any kind of uh, drug related policy is to minimize the overall amount of deaths and harm, why not make things like test strips readily available 
Um, yeah, that, that's always a shocker for me in terms of the people who end up blocking those movements, but such as the reality that we're still operating in. Right, right. And I guess while you were in college, uh, were there any other kind of activities that you got involved with in terms of either drug activism or harm reduction or anything along those lines? Yeah, um, in addition to being in my SSDP chapter, about a year or so after that chapter was founded, we also founded or rather resurrected um, the Pittsburgh chapter of DanSafe which is a nightlife harm reduction organization that's based on um, peer-based popular education for people who use drugs. Um, so we'd kind of go to venues, concerts, events, um, anywhere people would like to have us where it was um, something needed to perform drug checking as well as hand out things like water and condoms, harm reduction information specific to certain drugs um, and kind of do that work in the nightlife community. Um, I'm still the current president of Pittsburgh Dance Safe, although for obvious reasons we've not been as active during the pandemic. Um, and I also did uh, some work with Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition when they were around here. Um, we did the HERO initiative, which involved uh, some of us becoming volunteers to do trainings in our communities um, about the overdose crisis and policy around that and how people who are just regular people who are concerned, like healthcare professionals or family members of people who use drugs or who have passed, uh, could get involved and talk to their legislators about these issues. So that was a really great program. And I also volunteered for our local syringe exchange program here at Prevention Point Pittsburgh throughout the time that I was in school. Got it. And a quick follow up on Dance Safe. Uh, I know you mentioned that it sounded as though you were working with organizations or venues that they would, would they reach out to you or did you reach out and offer the services and you only, the Dance Safe Pittsburgh crew would kind of go wherever they were being asked to show up? What was kind of that process like of establishing those relationships? Sure. Um, I mean, it kind of went in both directions. We had some venues or like organizations find out that we existed and then ask if we could be part of some of their events. And uh, as long as we had the capacity, we're always happy to do that. And um, for other venues, it's kind of more we like our membership of our chapter looked at the needs of the nightlife community as we knew it and suggested some places that could use some nightlife harm reduction measures. And then we'd kind of go about reaching out to the venue manager or anyone like that and seeing um, if that was something that they would be okay with or that they would uh, welcome us in as a vendor. And not to not to put you on the spot to call out any specific organizations, but did you ever find resistance in, in with any of the places that you reached out to that would seem like logical places to have that? Or was it relatively smooth sailing? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's it's common for a lot of dance safe chapters to have that, uh, especially in states like Pennsylvania, where, as I mentioned, drug checking materials are considered illegal as paraphernalia. Um, yeah, there's some venues who don't want to admit that drug use happens at their venue, and you're always going to have that, right? Um, and then there's also some where they're welcoming, but once it gets into the nitty gritty of actually being there, uh, they have some questions about how substances are being handled and stuff like that. And uh, it can um, 
it can be an interesting back and forth, but it's been a really good time working for DanceSafe and trying to get some of those connections established here. And I guess in general, whether it's to someone local in the Pittsburgh area or just to to folks who are just kind of realizing uh, the world of harm reduction and activism in these spaces, what would be some uh, ways that you would recommend people can kind of start their journey of getting more involved and, and helping out? Yeah, I mean, as far as specific to Pittsburgh goes, um, SSDP chapters are open to everyone, whether you're a current student or not. So the University of Pittsburgh uh, has a chapter, Point Park University has a chapter, and uh, our community college, CCAC, has an ambassador now, I believe. Um, So anyone who wants to join any of those chapters in the area is welcome to. um, And Pittsburgh DanceSafe is also open to any members of the community who would like to join. With DanceSafe, there's a brief uh, training at the beginning to make sure you're ready to volunteer, but nothing crazy. And with Prevention Point Pittsburgh, um, outside of the pandemic, we're not actually accepting any new volunteers during the pandemic, um, as we've been running on just staff power for now. But normally, you can uh, sign up for a volunteer orientation and start volunteering at the syringe exchange program pretty easily. So any of those things can be done. I know there's also active SSDP chapters in other parts of Pennsylvania. There's an active DanceSafe chapter in Philadelphia, as well as Prevention Point Philadelphia, another syringe exchange program. So usually getting involved with any of those will just kind of lead you to the others and lead you to what current stuff is going on. And I believe I've, at least at some point prior to the pandemic starting, I remember seeing at least occasional even local government-run naloxone training uh, or some other programs that might actually be sponsored on on more of a local government level. Sure. Um, I've definitely been part of a couple of those with the Allegheny County Health Department where there were naloxone trainings or naloxone giveaways. Um, that was also something I did for SSDP as a webinar relatively recently, and I would do um, with my SSDP chapter on campus before as well. Yeah, that's really cool. And just to, I guess, plug one specific thing on the Pittsburgh uh, UPIT uh, SSDP side, that was actually where we had first connected when I was still a grad student just down the street from from UPIT. And uh, yeah, just the the club and the atmosphere there was uh, super welcoming, even though I was kind of coming, I think, a month before I was wrapping up grad school. Uh, nonetheless, it was still just a, a great community to get to connect with, even if it was for for just a short part on my side. Sure. Yeah. I mean, SSDP is a really welcoming space in general. And uh, I think it's always exciting um, to get new student members, but also to get community members that are maybe from other schools or maybe not a student at all that just want to get involved as well. And so changing tracks a little bit to to talk about Prevention Point, which I know you mentioned you had uh, volunteered with them when you were still in school. And if I'm not mistaken, now you are actually working with them in in some capacity. Uh, Do you mind just mentioning what has been uh, either the focus of the role overall or, or just some specific things that you have worked on while you've been with them? Yeah, sure. Um, So I did my senior year, my bachelor's of social work internship with Prevention Point, 
Um, so I was there for about a year that way uh, after being a volunteer. And then in, in around April, I was hired part-time. And I mainly, I do direct service uh, every Sunday with some of our other staff members at one of our syringe exchange program sites. Um, and then I mostly do preparation of supplies, uh, some data entry work and things like that, and uh, pack uh, safer injection kits and other supplies for one of our partner organizations that um, distributes those to people experiencing homelessness in Pittsburgh or those who are otherwise unable to make it to prevention point sites normally. To take a bit of a step back from the specifics of, uh, of your experience and, and shift over to more of a general discussion on, on harm reduction, do you mind just giving some of your personal views on the idea of where do you see the most uh, sort of where have you seen since you've been involved in the world of harm reduction? Where have you seen the most progress in terms of Pittsburgh specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think harm reduction efforts have been growing in Pittsburgh in recent years. And um, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but definitely my colleagues that, you know, with SSDP and DanSafe both resurfacing in the city, that's given a lot more of a presence for youth leaders and, um, you know, contacts that way. We're lucky that Prevention Point Pittsburgh has been here around 25 years um, and is still going strong. And we've seen a lot of growth around that and around some naloxone distribution here recently. And just more, more people getting involved, I think, as it becomes more normalized, as all of these groups get bigger and more visible, it's something that's on people's minds more often, perhaps. And I realize I, I should have dropped this in earlier, given how many times we've already used the term. But how would you actually define the term harm reduction? What, what does that mean to you? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot of different definitions out there. But I would say just uh, mitigating the risks or harms associated with a certain action, in this case, using drugs, uh, so that could be really direct and exactly what you think it is, like having naloxone on hand to prevent an opioid overdose. Um, but it could also be uh, legal harm reduction, like policy change that stops people who use drugs from being arrested and stuff like that. Um, so really just anything that mitigates harm. Uh, some Examples that I've gotten before I think can be helpful for people who are unfamiliar are like seatbelts are harm reduction for driving, right? Um, or condoms are harm reduction for transmission of STIs, things like that. So it's present all throughout the world, but just really relevant to the community of people who use drugs. And again, if thinking of Pittsburgh specific or maybe Pittsburgh in the in the immediate surrounding area, what are some of the things, especially, you know, if uh, you had a magic wand and you could just enact any policy changes around this that you could, you know, what would be the change that you would really want to see happen in the near future from a harm reduction perspective? Sure. So I touched on this a little bit before uh, talking about uh, my chapters, my SSDP chapters, Decriminalize Safety Initiative. But um, I think decriminalizing syringes um, in the full state of Pennsylvania would be something that would be extremely helpful. Um, 
There has been legislation that unfortunately has not passed around legalizing syringe exchange programs specifically as um, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia's syringe exchange programs are legal under local ordinance only. So they're not legal to uh, set up in the rest of the state. Although there are many underground syringe exchange programs running in Pennsylvania right now, I think decriminalizing syringes would accomplish both those organizations being able to kind of come out and get more funding and be safer doing their work, but it would also make people who inject drugs safer on a day-to-day -day basis if syringes were not considered paraphernalia should they be stopped by law enforcement. So that would be a really great thing to see. And then also um, the drug checking materials, uh, especially in light of fentanyl test strips, um, they're able to tell someone whether fentanyl is present in their drugs and that might change the way that they use. Maybe they'll use a little less or use slower or have a friend on hand who has naloxone in case of an overdose. So those can be a really important tool for health empowerment and um, as well as reagent drug checking kits, uh, being able to tell you more information about what you're going to consume as well. If those were decriminalized, we could essentially... Um, Places that work with people who use drugs could distribute them more readily and people who use drugs could kind of carry them around with them more readily without worrying about them uh, being illegal. Something I think is really interesting in light of the pandemic is that the syringe exchange programs in Pennsylvania that are running now were deemed life-sustaining services that were essential during the pandemic and have been able to keep up all operations. So I'm hoping that in some way that designation kind of um, shows some others in the Pennsylvania government how important these programs really are. But I'd really like to see a, a widespread decrim of uh, syringes and drug checking materials in Pennsylvania, I think would do a lot in terms of harm reduction for the overdose crisis specifically. And when it comes to some of the arguments that maybe, you know, throughout your experience, you might have heard trying to argue why decriminalizing needle exchanges uh, or decriminalizing the possession of needles and, and allowing more fluidly the exchanges, um, what are sort of the, the counter arguments against that? Do, are, are they all kind of rooted, at least in your experience, have they been kind of rooted in this idea of, uh, well, drugs are bad and we shouldn't do anything to promote drug use, uh, even if that entails more focusing on saving lives than than mitigating the usage? But it, does it all come from that moralistic perspective in, in your uh, opinion, or has there been any other kind of arguments that you've heard? Sure. Uh, a lot of it does come from that moralistic perspective, kind of the idea that drugs, especially highly stigmatized drugs like heroin, methamphetamine, crack cocaine, um, are always bad and that we shouldn't do anything to, I guess, even acknowledge that they're around, right? Um, yeah. That's one argument. There's also kind of the the argument that goes along with that, that uh, resources like that are enabling to people who use drugs. Um, and that kind of comes from the idea that abstinence is the only way to recover. And in order to get to that point, someone must hit rock bottom proverbially. So they shouldn't be offered robust supports while they're still currently using drugs um, is an argument that I've heard kind of often. And then you also have even 
when the majority of people agree that these are services that are good and necessary, but then with their actual implementation, they decide not in my backyard. Um, they either deny that there's a lot of people who use drugs in their community who could benefit, or they just say that, you know, they don't want people who use drugs to be traveling to their communities for services and that it'll bring down the value of their property or, you know, any other number of things like that. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, doing my my um, independent study as part of my master's program, I chose to explore the fentanyl crisis that was specifically happening in Estonia, which I, I had never heard of prior to speaking to one professor. And it started so much earlier, whereas I think in the U.S., if I'm remembering offhand, we saw kind of a, the, the presence of fentanyl really start coming up in 2012, 2013 and escalating since then. Uh, in Estonia, they had a, a market dislocation around the, around the opioid market overall uh, in 2002. And ever since then, it's kind of been fentanyl. There's really no heroin or other, not, not that many uh, alternative opioids aside from fentanyl and mm -hmm. other kind of really, uh, really powerful. I think they also had carfentanil and I'm forgetting some of the other analogs. Um, but as more evidence was coming out of, you know, safe injection sites and needle exchanges and all of these elements that were clearly helping, you know, what you were saying with the, well, not in my backyard argument really started cropping up. And I got to speak to a few folks who were working on the health policy side in Estonia. And it just sounded so defeating for them where it's like, well, we finally pushed the law through and that was a huge battle. And now all of a sudden, nobody actually wants this to happen aside from the people who are directly affected uh, in terms of making it a presence in their community. So, um, I mean, I, I imagine this is a, a very going to be a very uh, long uh, tale of, a, of how long it's going to take to solve the problem. But do you have any any personal sense of some things that can help kind of normalize the thinking around harm reduction uh, to kind of get away from that myth of like, oh, if there's a needle exchange or even going further to a safe injection site, that that means, you know, whatever stereotype one has of drug users in their mind, all of a sudden that just runs rampant in their neighborhood. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think especially in terms of talking to friends and family and, you know, um, I'm from a much more rural part of the state where some of these attitudes are a lot more common than in a city like Pittsburgh. I think the, you know, harm reduction argument I used before about how things like condoms and seatbelts are harm reduction, or you could even say airbags in cars or um, other things like that. Something that's a really common form of harm reduction that has been legal for quite some time is like smoking cessation products. Uh, the idea that people will readily understand that someone choosing to take nicotine lozenges or a nicotine patch assumes less risk than smoking cigarettes or chewing tobacco does in and of itself, right? So I think first getting the concept down by just kind of going through some stuff that's familiar to people like that um maybe using nicotine or alcohol as an example as drugs that are legal and then i guess when it comes into the not in my backyard kind of arguments uh one i think it's important to remind people that the problem already exists in their backyard it, like they might not have it's hard to imagine anyone doesn't but they might not have any close friends or family members who have been affected by 
the overdose crisis, but they have seen it happen to people they know. And sometimes there's raw data around these things that can be shown to them like, hey, your neighborhood or your county experienced the most overdoses in X amount of time. Um, or we saw this many arrests for drug possession in your area at this amount of time. Um, sometimes that does help people come to their senses a little bit. And then I think um, what you were mentioning about this, uh, this idea that people have about drug users, what they look like, how they act, um, things like that, that's really a stigma argument that takes a little bit more to break down. Um, you kind of have to go through and systematically remind people that people who use drugs and those experiencing substance use disorders are people and they act in all different ways and uh, most of them don't act in the stereotypical way that they've been portrayed in the media and stuff like that since the war on drugs has begun you know, just reminding people that it's members of their own community that they're talking about, uh, you know, normalizing drug use and struggles with problematic use um, so that people feel like these are really members of their own community that they're outcasting if they're choosing to not have these services. Yeah, and I always especially find it interesting when individuals can kind of personally hold some of these views objecting to harm reduction or uh, more uh, just really focusing on on these questions of drug usage as a health question not a criminal question uh, that you know th they can have some of these very stringent views but at the same time not really care to dig into some of the people that they idolize and their potential substance usage, even if they're super open about it. And I know in mm -hmm. my own family, I have some folks who, I mean, they're by no means on the on the super far right spectrum of very anti-everything, uh, anti-drug, pro-drug war. But nonetheless, they are, are always very cautious about any changes in that area. And yet, uh, you know, uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds is one of their favorite Beatles songs and like all these little things. And it's like, well, <laughs> how, how are you not recognizing the links between culture uh, and the and these kind of advancements. And it's not even just on the music side. I, I was listening to a, a podcast today with a psychedelic researcher from John Hopkins. I'm forgetting the scientist he referenced, but it was Nobel winning scientist who said, oh, I, I would have never gotten my breakthrough if it wasn't for psychedelics. Uh, and just they, they don't want mm -hmm. to acknowledge either the proximity of the usage, sometimes in their own household or their community, as well as uh, not applying that same lens uh, towards the people that they idolize as they do towards the, you know, the quote unquote folks who are the bad users and the dangerous folks. Yeah. Yeah, that's super common. I've also seen a lot of people in the harm reduction fields who are, you know, very out and open about being a person who uses drugs or being a person in recovery that I think can help with some of that. It's not something I'd ever pressure someone into disclosing because there's so many reasons it can be dangerous for someone to do. Um, but when people are comfortable disclosing things like that, I think it kind of takes you a step back, right? Like you're at this conference and you're watching this person who, you know, has a lot of professional experience, maybe even has a master's or a PhD in what they're talking about right now. And they're telling you that, you know, at one point in their life or currently they experienced chaotic drug use and, um, you know, it hasn't changed much about them as a person. Like it has not changed their ability to be a professional in the field uh, or any other number of things. And I think that's a uh, like seeing more of that and uh, 
more people accepting it and people they idolize might help that whole stigma factor. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I can empathize with just how powerful the stigma is from the perspective of, you know, I'm super comfortable talking about my issues with mental health in terms of depression and anxiety. They, these have been very commonplace in my life uh, since kind of uh, hitting puberty in my teenage years. But, you know, even just being open about speaking about my history with cannabis addiction and some things along those lines, all of a sudden I start clamming up. And I mean, I've been procrastinating writing an episode on that pretty much since I started the podcast. Uh, it's just such a such a weird and deeply ingrained thing in people and, and our culture and society and it's a shame of just how steep the road we need to climb is to figure out what the what the better place is so we reach our end goal of less people dying and getting hurt mm -hmm. definitely but i i wanted to also ask you you know you were mentioning say the the decriminalization of needles uh how likely do you think that is, especially, you know, following up to the point that you made around certain things with naloxone or needle exchanges being deemed essential in the times of COVID? Do you think that might actually give a better shot at some kind of positive change in 2021? Or do you think it's going to be kind of more of the same? <laughs> um, I hope so. I, I am optimistic about Pennsylvania, especially in light of, um, of that designation. And you know, many other states in the Northeast, especially surrounding Pennsylvania, have legalized. We're one of the only states that have not done that as far as legalizing syringe exchange programs themselves. I think as more people who are impacted continue to um, learn, switch some of their perspectives possibly, speak to legislators about these issues, um, I think we can change where we stand on things like this. And um as far as decriminalization or legalization goes, we know it's always a slow process. Um, if we look at, you know, look to what's happening with the Moore Act and cannabis right now, federally even, there's still many states that have voted not to legalize cannabis, but it might eventually catch up with them is what we're seeing now. Um, so I think drug policy had a major win in the 2020 election. Uh, you know, regardless of who you're looking at as a candidate there, there's so many different legalization, decriminalization initiatives that passed. And I think it's just a matter of keeping everyone on their toes, keep speaking to your legislators, and, uh, you know, especially remember that issues that deal with highly stigmatized drugs are going to be highly stigmatized compared to those that are not, um, and kind of putting in a little extra energy there and picking that apart when you're doing advocacy. Yeah, I'm also really interested in seeing how, as the changes in Oregon with their, from my understanding, their full decriminalization of drugs, uh, and we actually get data from that and proof that, you know, decriminalizing drugs doesn't all of a sudden turn everyone's kids into a, you know, a, a menace to society and a drug user and, you know, all these other <laughs> things. And it's just, no, just people are safer now. I wonder if and how long it'll take for some of the lessons from those areas or, you know, as you were mentioning, I think it was it five states that uh, also legalized cannabis as as part of the, the November election, including some red states. It wasn't just blue states. And, you know, how this mm -hmm. kind of uh, data will actually just help people be more comfortable with like, oh, I don't have to agree with it, but I, I shouldn't stand in the way of it. Yeah, I mean, I think something with legalizing cannabis, especially recreationally across different states, I think we've seen this conservative shift to, oh, look how much money it can make yeah. us, right? And I think that's that's not necessarily a bad perspective. Um, 
if we're eventually able to legalize drugs, like not only does that cause a safe supply, which is really important harm reduction wise, a safer supply for people who use drugs, but there'd have to be a lot of back and forth where all of this revenue would go. But in a perfect world, it goes back to public interest. It goes towards uh, some reparations for people who were most harmed by the war on drugs and things like that. So I think cannabis can be a really good jumping off point for like, what could the world look like? And so what do you see as some of your kind of longer term goals in terms of, you know, on a personal level, what do you hope to be able to affect, whether it's in the context of opioids and harm reduction specifically, whether it's more around the uh, overdose crisis more broadly, whether it's something totally different, I guess, what, what do you see as kind of some of your, you know, your North Star that you're shooting for in this world? Yeah, um, I think like a lot of people that are involved in drug policy reform, I'd love for, you know, drugs to be legalized when I retire, right? And um, and sex work to be decriminalized, but that's a whole nother topic. Yeah, it's a separate um, podcast. Th episode. Those would be, <laughs> maybe, um, but those would be, you know, my really long-term goals uh, for seeing huge policy reform and seeing us really change the way that we have framed things through the war on drugs kind of framework. Um, but I think in the more immediate, just providing more health empowerment and autonomy for people who use drugs, um, they're experts themselves. They know what they need themselves. Uh, they're able to do everything for themselves for the most part when given the proper resources and recognition that they deserve. And, um, I think that's really important in the immediate and um, less overdoses is extremely important in the immediate. We had uh, 4,300 fatal overdoses in Pennsylvania in 2019. Um, that's a staggering number uh, for people to be looking over, uh, treating differently because they don't agree with any number of things about people who use opioids. Um, and I think less arrests is also really important because, uh, as we know, um, people of color who also use drugs are at an increased risk for police brutality and violence. Um, and so are some other groups, um, you know, LGBTQ folks and um, others are at a greater risk of violence from the police. And even if you're not at a greater risk of violence, being arrested, detained away from your life and having your criminal record permanently marred by a drug charge could affect your education, your housing, your career in the future, um, and, uh, and any other number of things. So I think just really like removing as much law enforcement interaction from people who use drugs as we can and uh, reversing as many overdoses as humanly possible would be... Um, my goals at least to be working on in the immediate. And before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to make sure to mention either about any specific organizations or, or more broadly about the, the importance of harm reduction? I mean, I think just saying if anyone would like to get involved, it's a pretty easy field to get involved with. Uh, we're all friendly <laughs> folks. Um, so signing up for 
any of those organizations is pretty easy. Um, I can also give websites for a few if uh, anyone's interested in learning more about that. Yeah, I'm definitely going to include the specific links in the show notes. But if you do want to plug any, again, just plug any specific organizations or uh, any places you'd like to, uh, like, you know, be found online, uh, if that's your thing, uh, please feel free to. Sure. Um, You can find Students for Sensible Drug Policy at ssdp.org. You can find DanceSafe at dancesafe.org. And you can find Prevention Point Pittsburgh at pppgh.org. And, you know, all of those websites have About Us pages and things like that if you want to learn more about our work and uh yeah i I credit the three of them for most of the knowledge that i have in the field as well perfect well thanks so much for taking the time to chat today julia sure thank you so much for having me thanks for taking the time to tune in the history of drugs in society is produced by me eugene leventhal credits on the music go to blue dot sessions and to bbc sound effects splice sounds and kyle's for the free audio Feel free to reach out on Twitter at DrugsHistory or over email, DrugsHistory at gmail.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend or rate on iTunes. Be well and speak soon.